releasing the kids to head upstairs. Instead, they stay with us in worship today. And we, uh, we get to worship together. And we've provided what we call a, a kids worship bulletin at either of the entrances to the sanctuary. If you're coming from the main part of the building, there would have been a, a stack of those. And you may even see them on either of these pedestals. And if the kids didn't pick up one of those, it would be completely okay for them to get up now and go and grab one because it's actually rooted from our same passage of text in Acts 11 and 12. And so it's a way for them to sort of interactively follow along, take notes, do some activities that help them to think about and engage with this passage of scripture that we're going to study together today in Acts chapter 11. Now we're we're moving through uh, the, the text at such a rate that we are trying to take multiple situations that I've told you already could each of these could really be its own its own sermon perhaps but we're trying to to really work on what what is it that connects these things and and see the bigger picture at work here and of course the bigger picture that we see in Acts is the movement of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the people in the church. We'll see that even today as they're following the Spirit's leadership and, and the church itself, these churches even in multiple locations, multiple cities are being led by the, the work of the Holy Spirit to accomplish these incredible things. And when we see that, we ought to, we ought to be inspired. I hope we would be encouraged, but also that we would be instructed that the same Holy Spirit that was working then is the same Spirit that we have who's guiding us and leading us now and today. The same Holy Spirit that worked tremendous miracles in the life of the early church and these believers is the same Holy Spirit that indwells every one of us who have trusted Jesus by faith. This week as I was studying for the, the, the message and, and working through just my, my background, my preparation, I came across a quote from a pastor named John Piper. Many of you have heard the name John Piper before, but it's a quote about prayer. And I thought this was an incredible quote. I'm going to sort of lead off the message today by sharing this quote with you because he's talking about the essential work of prayer in the, in the lives of the church as they were following the Holy Spirit's leadership. They were praying and seeking God's movement, seeking God to lead them. And all of that happens through prayer. We'll even see that. That, of course, will, will be a key part of the message this morning, understanding how when we are a people who pray, when we are a people who seek to live on mission. But the, the nature of this quote by Piper that I want to share with you points us to understand the, the essentialness of our mission as a church. And so let me share this, and then I'll, I'll try to connect these dots for you. So Piper says this, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom for ringing up to the butler to change the thermostat. It's a wartime walkie-talkie to call in firepower because the enemy is greater than we are. If you try to turn this into a domestic intercom to bring another pillow, it malfunctions and you wonder why. It's not made to be an intercom. It's made to be a wartime walkie-talkie. What a powerful uh, illustration that is, that prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. It's a way that we communicate 
with God as, as we are calling in fire support, as it says there, that we are, that we are asking for his movement in our lives, that we are seeking him to, to move and do the work for us that we can't do on our own. And the mistake that we make so much of the time is that we treat prayer as though it's about our convenience. God, if you would just do this or if you would do that, it would be more convenient. We need to understand that we are engaged in a war. We are engaged in a battle. And that's really the greater context for what Piper is discussing in all of this, is is that we are people who are engaged as as children of God, as believers in Jesus. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. Well, we understand that we have a mission. And, And so you find that we try to incorporate our mission as First Baptist Church into into something that we do regularly. In fact, many Sundays, I intentionally use the language of our mission, especially toward the end of our service. Now that I've said that, you'll be looking for me to do it today, and and so I better be intentional about working it in today. But I will often say something about how we are called to love people to faith in Christ and to multiply disciples, that that's our mission. And in fact, if you were to say, what is the mission of First Baptist Church? We have formally, as a church, adopted this mission statement, that the mission of First Baptist Church is to love all people to faith in Jesus Christ and to multiply disciples. That's the reason we exist, is to connect people with Jesus and to multiply disciples, not just add a few here and there, but to multiply disciples. That we, as the church, we exist to bring God glory as we love others to faith and as we multiply disciples and advance the gospel. It's a mission And when we use that language of a mission, I think that speaks to the essential purpose. The the, the reason why we exist is because we do live in a day and an hour when we're engaged in spiritual warfare. Ephesians speaks of this, of course, in Ephesians chapter 6, when we're encouraged to put on the full armor of God. You don't need armor unless you're going into a battle, right? The reason that we're encouraged to put on the full armor of God is because we are engaged in a spiritual spiritual battle. And that language is used extensively in, in various ways throughout the New Testament. This idea of warfare, of battle, of engaging an enemy, of seeking to advance our, our, uh, our purpose, which is to multiply disciples, to advance the kingdom of God, that we are a, a people called to a king. And in fact, it was some years ago, as we were working through this particular idea of adopting the specific language of the mission that we have now that I preached the last time that I preached from Acts chapter 12. And so this morning we're going to be in Acts 11 and Acts 12. But as we were working our way through that was the last time that I preached. And in fact, the day that, that, we, that I preached Acts chapter 12 some years, it's about seven years ago, was the day that we introduced specifically the language that we would then go on to adopt about our mission statement together as a church, to love all people to faith in Christ and multiply disciples. And when we were discussing it then, we talked about how we are called to, to be a people with a mission. And so when you came in today, you probably got a bulletin, a worship guide. I actually don't have one on me at the moment, uh, or I would hold it up. But you, you, you received a, a bulletin, a worship guide when you came in. And if you turn that over on the front side of that bulletin, you will see these words, a people with a mission. And that idea of being a people with a mission actually flows from what we see in the New Testament, in the life of the early church. That this was a people who lived with a sense of urgency, who lived with a sense of gospel mission that drove what they did. And so as we 
learn from the church in Acts, the early church, as we learn from this people and their mission, I think it will help us to understand how we too are called to be a people with a mission to engage the world with the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and to work to multiply that kingdom, to advance that gospel as we seek to multiply disciples. And we'll see that even this morning in Acts 11 and Acts 12. Last week we left off in the middle of Acts chapter 11. And so that's where we will begin this morning, finishing Acts chapter 11. So the way that we're going to do this, you can see on your notes on the back side of the worship guide, there are six points. There are going to be three different portions of text that we're going to read together this morning. And it, as we read each portion of text in, a, in Acts 11 and then in Acts 12, we're going to make, I'm going to make two different points, okay? So you'll see that the way that I've structured the message, it's like we're going to read some text, consider points one and two, read some more text, points three and four, and then finally points five and six together So as we work our way through this this morning. And so first let's read together from Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, and we're going to read all the way down through verse 26 before we look at these first two points together. And, and the, the, the thing that we will see in all of this, I'm, I'm going to point to in verse 21, how the hand of the Lord is on the church. The main idea of today's message is how we can be a people with a mission, that we would, we would be moved by the hand of the Lord, just as the church in Acts Move, was moved by the hand of the Lord that was on them. So let's read together Acts 11, beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. We need to unpack that just a little bit. If you remember in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we saw Stephen. Stephen was uh, was. First of all, he was appointed as one of the, the first deacons, and then ultimately he was arrested. And in his arrest, he has the opportunity to give a defense for what it is that he's been teaching and doing. And he preaches the gospel and calls on those listening to, to repent of their sin and to turn to the Lord. They didn't. And in fact, they killed him. They, they persecuted him by oppressing and even killing him for his, his stand for the Lord. And we talked about that martyr then, then spread the church. The church was scattered. Members of the church were scattered as Saul, this, this character named Saul, rises to prominence. And I say character. I mean, he was a real person. It's not just a fable or a story. But, but in, the, in the timeline, if you will, in the story arc of the book of Acts, Saul rises to prominence at the end of chapter 7, the early verses of chapter 8 in Acts. And we see that Paul, or Saul begins to persecute the church. He ravaged the early church. And in so doing, the church began to scatter. Now, this is what's known as the diaspora. And that word, that language, if you've ever heard that word, that actually just comes from a Greek word. The word diaspora in the Greek language just means the scattered. That's what it means. And so it's a transliteration. And so there, to this day, we will use that terminology to talk about diaspora Jews or diaspora of other different types of people groups. And it just means people who are a part of a certain ethnic group who have been scattered over a broad territory. That's exactly what happens in Acts. But what we see is that initially, as the church is scattered to areas like Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, they, they, limited their ministry at first to the Jews. But you may remember that last week where we left off, 
is that God had given a vision to a man and then ultimately even shared a vision with Peter. And Peter went and preached the gospel to a group of Gentiles, which is to say a group of non-Jews who came to faith. And so now, as that report traveled back to the church in Jerusalem, they agreed that the gospel was for everyone, that anyone could come to faith. And that message has not yet dispersed, but we're about to see that, that it's soon going to take off. And, and that's the point of what we see. Okay, back to verse 20, verse, chapter 11, verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. And you may even see a footnote that references as much. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is such an important point. The hand of the Lord was with them. The early church was being led by the Spirit. Yes, they were experiencing persecution. Yes, they were facing all kinds of trials and difficult circumstances. And yet, because they were trusting in the Lord, because they were walking in obedience and seeking Him, the hand of the Lord was with them. And so everything else that I'm going to talk about today really flows from, stems from this idea of how we can operate as a church in 2024 in such a way that the hand of the Lord would be on us as a people with a mission, as a people who are seeking to love people to faith in Christ and multiply disciples. How is it that we do that in such a way that God's hand is on us? I'm going to give you six steps or six points, by the way, of how I think it is that we're to do that. But it all flows from this key thought that God's hand was on the church because they were being led by his Holy Spirit. And so as we seek to follow the leadership of the Spirit, may his hand be on us. Keep reading verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so we see this movement of God that is, that is prompted by the work of the Holy Spirit, their obedience to the Holy Spirit. And from that, great things are happening. But two different times in the verses we just read, we saw that a great number of people came to the Lord. A great number of people were added to the faith. Something of that language is used here, right? And so the church is multiplying because they are walking in obedience and following the leadership. The hand of the Lord is on them. So if we're to be a church today, in our own day, in our own circumstance, in our city, in, in Chickasha, in 2024, if we're to be a, a people with a mission, and we're to be a people who have the hand of the Lord on us, well, how do we do that? Well, I want to show you six things that the church was doing in Acts 11 and 12 that I think are things that we ought to be doing today. Just as these are things that we see in the first church, if you will, or the first churches, as we think about the churches multiplying in all of these cities and all of these locations, just as we see these things in the lives of the, of the first churches, local churches, we should seek to do these things in our midst as a local church in our own context today. The first one is this, they labored with steadfast purpose. And I've chosen that language very specifically, because in verse 23, we see 
that Barnabas encourages the church, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I love that language, steadfast purpose. That means that they were to be determined, right? That's what, when I think of what it means to have steadfast purpose, it means that they were determined. They were focused on their purpose, their mission. They understood the mission. They understood their their assignment. They understood what it was that was to be central to who they were as a people, and they were steadfast in that purpose. They They were diligent. Now, one of the things that we see is that there are lots of things that could have knocked them off course. There were lots of things that could have derailed them. And when I read the book of Acts and I see all the opposition that they come up against and I think about all the things that they endured, I can relate. Now, it's not the same. And I don't mean to say that in our lives, the inconveniences that we faced often don't rise to the level of of actual persecutions the way that we see. And yet, no doubt, there are trials and troubles that we will encounter as well. And it's different from what we see then, just like it's been different from other generations of believers in the church, just frankly, just like it's different even from other brothers and sisters in Christ today in different areas, different parts of the world, different nations, even different parts of our own nation. We have different experiences, we have different things that we're facing, and yet the one common denominator is that we're all engaged in a battle against an enemy who is real and whose desire, whose aim is to steal, to kill, to destroy, to, to ruin our witness, to bring damage and destruction to our lives, to, to, to do everything he can to defame the sake of the gospel, the witness to the gospel that each one of us have. And sadly, he's really good at it because Satan has been at work for this for a long time. And he's really good at bringing destruction and all the havoc and all the ruin that he causes. And because he's really good, we have to be on guard. We have to be determined. We have to be steadfast as the word is used here. That's not a word that we use a lot, really. In fact, probably, I, I don't know that I've ever, and this uh, maybe, but, but I can't think of an example of when I've ever heard of or used the word steadfast that wasn't in some kind of a connection to the language of the church, right? Now, this is a word we use in church. It's in our songs. It's in our liturgies. It's in our, the language of our, of our Sunday school lessons and the things that we do because it's from the Scripture itself. But it's such an important word, steadfast, because something that is steadfast, when you think of something that is steadfast, is something that is anchored, something that is secure. I think of this. When I was a boy, I was 12 years old, and my family went on a trip to Chicago. And in those days, this is in the late 1980s, in those days, the Sears Tower in Chicago was the tallest building in the world. It's not anymore, not even really by far. There are several other buildings now. But in those days, it was the tallest building in the world. And we went to, you could, you could, uh, you could go to the top of the Sears Tower. And I don't actually remember if we were literally on the top floor, but effectively it was at the top. And you felt like you were on top of the world. I remember going to the top of the Sears Tower and stepping out. They had this 
small glass observation deck of sorts that you could step up to and you could look, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of feet below and the people look like tiny ants and you just felt like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm up so high. But one of the things that I noticed that I, I never really thought about until I got to the top of the Sears Tower is that actually the building itself swayed and moved. And it was kind of an unnerving thing. If ever you've been to the top of a really tall building like that, maybe, maybe you've experienced that. Some years later in my uh, late 20s, I was on a mission trip in Taiwan, and we went to, in the city of Taipei, was Taipei 101. Again, in those days, this has been some years ago, it, it's no longer the tallest building in the world now, but in those days, when I went to Taipei 101, it too was the tallest building in the world. This would have been like in 2006. Uh, and so I remember going to the top of that building and the same experience. This large structure actually would sway and, and would move. And in fact, in Taipei 101, in that building, Taipei 101, you could see that the top several floors were built around this engineering mechanism that was designed to help the building effectively flex with the sway and the movement of the structure. And it was an amazing engineering marvel, and it's part of what allowed them to build such an, a, a tall uh, structure. Those buildings are steadfast. They're not immovable. There's some movement with them. There's some sway. There's some give and take. And yet they're anchored. They're designed in such a way that even though there may be some movement. I think about that word when I think about this word steadfast. I don't know that it's the perfect analogy of sorts. But sometimes when we think of steadfast, we think that we have to be rigid and nothing can change and nothing can move. And so then what happens when we experience the troubles, the trials, the things that move us in life? We think, well, I'm, I'm a failure. I can't be steadfast because I can't be perfect. Notice that Barnabas does not exhort the church to remain faithful to the Lord in perfection. That's a, key, that's a key observation, okay? He doesn't tell them, you guys had better never mess up because everything is riding on you. And if you mess up, then, then the wheels come off. And what he tells them to do is to be faithful with steadfast purpose to remain steadfast, to remain anchored, tethered to their purpose, and to be faithful. It's enough to be faithful. The call for us is to be faithful, not to be perfect. Someday, on the other side of glory, whether that's because we die and we meet Jesus face to face and enter into our eternal reward, or whether Jesus comes again, when we meet Jesus face to face someday, we will be perfected. We will have, we, we will, we will meet him in his perfected body, and we will be perfect as he is perfect. But until then, we live in a fallen world and we wrestle against sin. And it's a reality. It's a part of the reality that every one of us contends with, that we can't be perfect because we aren't perfect. And yet we serve a risen perfect Savior who gave himself for us. And he doesn't call us to be perfect. He calls us to be steadfast in our purpose. And I want you to hear that today, that as individuals and as a church, we are called to be steadfast, to labor, to work with steadfast purpose, just as the church did in Acts. The second thing that we see in this passage of text that we just read is that they were, 
They were following the Spirit's leadership. So we're to follow the Spirit's leadership. The church was led by the Holy Spirit. It's literally, it's like he's talking to them, like he's guiding to them. And I don't think they heard the Holy Spirit as an audible voice because that's just not how the Holy Spirit works. And nonetheless, in a very real and a profound way that they knew to be true then and that, frankly, we can experience now, the Spirit was speaking to them. You ever, you ever get that prompting that, that, that movement in your heart, that, that conviction of your conscience that you know is God speaking to you. You know that it's the Lord working and leading you and operating in such a way, and, he, and He's speaking to you. Maybe not audibly. That's, again, that's not how it works. But He's speaking. He's moving. And so the, the challenge for us is to listen The question is not whether the Holy Spirit is going to speak. It's not whether God is going to speak and move and if he wants to work. The question is, will we listen and will we follow what he's telling us to do? The early church, their success, that they saw many, a great number, believe and turn to the Lord. Their success hinged on the fact that they were following the Spirit's leadership. So we see again and again in these chapters of Acts that they prayed and the Spirit led them. They prayed and the Spirit guided. The Spirit told them to do this. The Spirit, right? And and, and that is so key that we see that they listened to, they obeyed the leadership of the Holy Spirit. These were a people with a mission who followed the direction of the Holy Spirit. Let's jump ahead now. Before I make the next two points, let's read a little bit more of the story of what's happening. So if we go to Acts chapter 12, now beginning in verse 1, we see at about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Why James, the brother of John? Well, there are multiple Jameses in the story of the New Testament. James was a rather common name, and so this is just making sure that we understand which James this is. So this was James, the brother of John, or James, we might say, the son of Zebedee, okay? The sons of thunder, that's what James and John were known as. That's literally what we see them referred to in the gospel. So this is James, one of the sons of thunder, right? All right, so he killed James with the sword, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Evidently, Peter was considered such a threat that they assigned four squads of soldiers to guard this one man intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people, which is to say to publicly try him and, and then, of course, to likely crucify him or, or at the least uh, kill him as a, a martyr. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so we we see that Herod is intent upon stopping this movement of the church. And, and not just Herod, really what we under, come to understand is that Herod is being used here as the instrument of the enemy, that he, is, that he is being guided 
by the hand of the enemy to try to stop this movement of the church that first became known in Antioch now as Christians, which is to say little Jesuses. They are, they are followers of this Jesus, and, and so they are seeking to live like and emulate the example of Jesus. And Herod seeks to put an end to this because he saw it as a threat to his own power and his own corrupt injustice. And so what we see is that they, they, they killed James and they arrested Peter with every intention of doing the same to him. But before they could arrest him, I mean, before they could try him, I should say, as he was imprisoned, the Lord intervened on his behalf. And so you keep reading in the next verses and you read that at night that the, uh, the angel of the Lord appears and that he effectively says, Peter, come with me. And the angel of the Lord leads Peter outside. Even though Peter had been bound in chains and, and guarded by a heavy armament of, of guards, miraculously, this angel of the Lord ushers him in the middle of the night free. And, and effectively, he finds himself in the, in the city square, if you will, loosed now, free from his captivity, and he comes to his senses. He, he awakens from what he thought was a dream, only to discover that, in fact, it was really happening, and he realizes where he is, that he's no longer bound, and so he comes to this idea, well, I should go be with the church. I should go join my brothers and sisters. I got to get back to work. You, you might think that Peter... That, that, his, uh, that his first reaction would be to run for his life. That might be our first re- response. I better get out of here. I better get out of town because I'm a wanted man. And instead, Peter's first thought was, no, nah, the mission is too important. I've got work to do. And so let's pick up again in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. That is to say, John Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. She left him standing at the door, right? Verse 15, and they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is an angel. But Peter continued knocking And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. You may think to yourself, uh, okay, he's to tell these things to James and to the brothers, but we just saw that James was killed. Does Peter not know that James was killed? And the answer would just simply be, it's a different James. This is referring to James, the brother of Jesus. So the other James, if you will. There are a lot of Jameses. Uh, those were common names in, in those days. And so Peter says, tell these things to James, who was really the prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. And, and so there to instruct them, and, and Peter leaves to go on about the mission. I told you that, that they were a people who were being driven by their mission. And so the next part of being driven by mission, that the hand of the Lord would be on us, is that we would pray with expectation. 
in verse 5, chapter 12, verse 5, we see that earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This is where this idea of the importance of prayer becomes so central to the life of a healthy church that is doing what God is, is leading it to do. And so what I, what I began with, the, the quote that I shared with you about how prayer is like a wartime walkie-talkie comes into play when we consider how vital a role prayer plays in the life of the church. In fact, as we read through the book of Acts, I've been personally really convicted about my own prayer life, about the, the, the ineptness in so many ways of my own prayer life, because we see them pray and God work again and again. And so I'm just sharing with you that I personally have been challenged and convicted as we've studied Acts to spend more time in prayer, to be more disciplined, to be more, to, to, to borrow the language from the last point, that, we, that I would labor stead, with steadfast purpose in prayer and that I would see prayer as a part of laboring with steadfast purpose that I'm following the Spirit's leadership as I go to God in prayer, as I seek to walk in and, and live in obedience to Him through prayer. They prayed with expectation. What we see is that their prayer quite literally opens doors. It looses chains, doesn't it? That the angel of the Lord appeared and Peter was set free from his imprisonment, not so that he could escape suffering and persecution, not so that his life could be more comfortable, but because his mission was too great and prison was just getting in the way of it. And, and so God has work for Peter to do, and so Peter is set free so that he can go back to work, so that he can re-engage. He can get back on the front lines. He can get re-engaged in the battle, as it were. Prayer opens doors, prayer looses change, prayer delivered the, the church, the believers from their desperate situations. Prayer even brought about miracles as they prayed, earnest prayer. I've thought a lot and reflected a lot this week on that word earnest. Earnest prayer. What makes prayer earnest that's different from any other prayer? Well, my what, what I have come to, to believe and what I would propose to you today is that earnest prayer is a prayer that is kingdom-focused, that is mission-centered. Earnest prayers are not prayers that are me-centered, but prayers that are Christ-centered. Earnest prayers are prayers that are about the work of God, the kingdom of God, advancing the mission of God, the gospel of Jesus, and not about making my life better or making my life easier or somehow centered around me. Lord, and again, it goes back to the quote that I shared. It's a, it's a wartime walkie-talkie, not a prayer to the butler upstairs that he might change the thermostat or bring us another pillow, right? We are calling down the firepower of God and the mission that we are engaged in when we, when we pray. So they prayed with expectation. And even that word expectation is so important. They prayed, and when they prayed, they, they expected God to work. Now, you might say, but they were surprised when Peter stood at the door. They were, because they, God didn't always work in the ways that they expected, just as he doesn't always work in the ways that we expect. It didn't, I'm not meaning to say that, that everything that they expected happened just as they expected it to happen, but they prayed to God, believing that in his power he could do the imaginable, the incomprehensible. And when he did, they gave him praise and they kept their hand to the plow, so to speak. They stayed steadfast 
in their purpose. Second thing that we see in this particular part of the text is that they encouraged one another. They encouraged one another. So after relating to the church the story of all that had happened, what is it that we see that Peter says? Peter says, share these things with James and the brothers. Why do you think it is that Peter encouraged them or, or rather instructed them to share these things with James and the brothers? Is because this was all happening at a time when James and the brothers, which is to say James and the, the, the apostles, the, they had every reason to be, to be discouraged. Herod has just killed another one of their, of their leaders. James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of the apostle John. James, the apostle, has been, has been killed. Another one of their leaders has been killed. The church has been scattered. It seems like the enemy is winning. And yet, Peter reminds them that the power of the God that they are praying to, the power of the God they serve, is greater than anything that the enemy might bring against them, any assault of the enemy. And so, he says, encourage James, encourage the brothers, encourage one another with these words. I think similarly, we ought to encourage each other. We ought to find ways. It's why it's so important that we gather together and we, and we encourage each other. That's why, we, that's why we provide things like our Sunday school ministry. Because as great as it is for you to come and hear my incredible preaching week after week, I, I paused there for you to laugh there, right? That was, that was like a TV sitcom. Uh, cue the laugh track. As great as it is that we gather together and we worship and we study the word together, and this is essential to what the New Testament teaches us the life of the church. But as good as this is, you also need, you need to engage with other people where you, can, where you can not just sit and listen, but you can talk and you can visit and you can pray and you can share and you can encourage each other. Sunday school becomes a key way that we do that. The many Bible studies and other things that we offer throughout the week, those are all meant to be ways that we encourage each other to stay steadfast in our purpose as we work to be a people with a mission so that the hand of God may be on us. So let's keep reading. Two more points. We go now to verse 20, chapter 12. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Why is this part? I've, I've asked myself the question, why is this part of the story inserted here? I mean, what does, really, what does this, this, uh, th- this little uh, aside, uh, as it is treated almost, what is this extra bit of the story about Herod? How does that help move the, the story of the church and the growth and the expansion of the church along? And, and this is what I really come to believe, that we're told about this because we're given an example of someone who saw God moving, and instead of, instead of surrendering his heart, submitting his heart to the lordship of Jesus, instead of trusting the Lord and following the Lord in obedience, he sought to 
resist what God was doing because it threatened his own importance, his own self-perceived glory, as it were. And so rather than giving God glory, Herod sought to keep the glory for himself. And in the end, he died and was eaten by worms. And that's a reminder to us that none of us, none of us, none of us, and I mean that truly, I'm saying that purposefully, is greater than God's glory. Our lives, our work, our purpose, the things that we're about, none of that is greater than bringing glory to God. Our primary purpose as we seek to be a people with God's hand on us, the hand of the Lord on us, a people with a mission, the primary purpose, the reason we have given a voice and a name to our mission even is because we do all of this to bring glory to God, not to ourselves. If God should tarry in his return, if Jesus doesn't come back for another hundred years, I hope that the First Baptist Church of Chickasha will still be here a hundred years from now. Our church this past year just had, in, in 2023, had its 131st anniversary. This church was founded on uh, December the 12th of 1892, was the first meeting of the First Baptist Church of Chickasha. It's 131 years old now, and if Jesus should wait another 100 years before he returns, and this church is 231, I hope that it's still here. But you know what? Even if the First Baptist Church of Chickasha should crumble and fall, this building be here, and this church and these people scattered, the church of Jesus Christ will, con- will continue. And how do I know that to be true? Because Jesus gave the promise to his disciples that the gates of hell would not stand against his church. His church will endure. His church will persevere. His church will continue. The question isn't, will the church endure? The question is, will this church, will our church, will the local body of the church continue to be about the work of the capital C church? The way that we do that, first and foremost, is give God glory that we don't try to seek the glory for ourselves. There are so many churches today that if you were to study that church, it seems like the whole focus of their mission is about getting people in a room together so that they can celebrate how great they are because they've drawn a big crowd. Sadly, a lot of the things that we do at times to draw a crowd are not the same as the things that we would do to advance the gospel and build the mission. Now, it can be, and don't, don't hear me say that every big church with, with large numbers is somehow watering down the gospel. In fact, there are so many wonderful examples of churches that are doing it right. And I think by God's grace and his mercy, we are, we are focused on being a church that's doing it right. There are plenty of churches bigger than ours, but in our own context, in our own community, we're a big church. And we seek to be a church that is focused on leveraging everything we can, every resource, everything the Lord has given to us to be a people with a mission, to bring glory to God because his glory is so great that it won't be shared with anyone. He wouldn't share his glory with Herod. He won't share it with anyone else, nor should he because to do that would somehow pervert the glory of God. We want to be a people who give God glory. Herod didn't but we must. So we give God glory. And as we do, the hand of the Lord will be on us. And then the the last thing that we see here is that they multiplied disciples. And again, this is where that language from our mission comes from. We see it again and again, that the church is growing. Many are being added to their number. Verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied 
That word multiplied is such a key word. And Barnabas and Saul and even John Mark and the work of the early church continued as the, as the church multiplied disciples. So as the, as the people of God, as, as the, the people with a mission in the life of the early church, we see that they labored with steadfast purpose. They followed the Spirit's leadership. They prayed with expectation. They encouraged one another. They gave God glory and they multiplied disciples. If we want to be a church that is, that is focused on its mission, that God, would, that God would move and his hand might be on us, then we need to do these six things. We need to continue doing. Can I say it that way? Because we, 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 we intentionally work at these things now. That we need to continue to labor with steadfast purpose. We need to continue to follow the Spirit's leadership. We need to continue to pray with expectation, to encourage one another, to give God glory and to multiply disciples. Just as the church did then, may we continue to do now so that God's hand would be on us and that his kingdom would increase and multiply through us. In a moment, we're gonna move into a time of response, a time of invitation. And in our time of invitation today, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you in this way. I want to encourage you to ask yourself the question. As a, as a part of a body, and we all understand, at least I hope you understand, none of us is called to be on our own, lone ranger for Christ. That we're all, every one of us, called to be a part of a body. And as a part of a body, as a part of a local body, a local church, how am I working? Because see, the temptation, I think, is to hear all of this and to think, oh, that's good. First Baptist Church ought to be doing those things. And yes, you're right. First Baptist Church ought to be doing all those things. But sometimes the temptation in our own day and time is to think that this really becomes the job of the pastor and the staff and not the work of the church. And I want to challenge you that this isn't just meant to be the work of an elite spiritual forces group, right? That's not what we are as the staff. We're not the elite spiritual forces that, that you pay to do the work of ministry for you. We're, we're at the forefront, yes. We're at the, the front lines of, of the work of the church, and, and we're blessed of God to shepherd and lead this body. But this is the work of the church, not the work of the pastors and the staff. It's not the work of the apostles. It's not just the work of Peter. In fact, Peter goes on. Peter says, do these things, be encouraged, and then he goes on, right? Because he has a mission and a purpose too. This is the work of the church. And my challenge is that we would set our hearts to be a church that does these things. And I want to ask you to consider, how are you engaged in, in, in these things that I've outlined today? How are you working to labor with steadfast purpose? How are you working to follow the Spirit's leadership, to pray with expectation, to encourage others, to give God glory, to multiply disciples? We are called together to be a body that encourages each other. And I want, I want that to be our response today, is that we would renew again our commitment to the Lord and to each other, that we will be a people with a mission who work to advance the gospel from Chickasha to the ends of the earth for God's glory. Would you pray with me? God, today, our desire is to give you glory. 
to put you first in all things, beginning with our own hearts. Lord, be first in my heart. Be first in each one of our hearts. If there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, I pray that even now they might be moved to surrender their life to you, Jesus, that they would put you first and seek to labor with steadfast purpose with others, to link arms with others, that we would advance the gospel together. Move in our hearts. Move in our lives, Jesus. Stir us to obedience that we may honor and glorify you in all things that we may love others to faith in Christ and multiply disciples as we advance your gospel. Move in us, we pray.